I thought I would give uh, Carolyn a break this morning and fix my own breakfast. She uh, she normally gets up and fix breakfast. We eat together on Sunday mornings, but with this earlier service, I have to get up a little earlier than usual. So I, when the alarm went off, I said, uh, "It's okay, stay in bed. I'll I'll fix something." That's one of the givens around our house that I don't cook. She doesn't preach, and I don't cook. It's a thing that we've worked out. And uh, up to this point, it works fairly well. As long as I stay out of her kitchen, everything goes well. Anyway, there is one thing that I can fix. It's called a smoothie. Now, most of you have no idea what a smoothie is, but you uh, take a blender and you put a couple of eggs in it and a little milk and uh, a half of a frozen orange juice, small frozen orange juice uh, can and not the can, the frozen orange juice, and, and uh, a little bit of yogurt, and it's uh, it's very good. I can handle that. I sometimes get eggshells in it, but I that, that I can handle fairly well. well this morning, I, I I had in my mind that I was going to fix myself a smoothie, and I rummaged around in the kitchen, and I found a carton of uh, pina colada yogurt in the freezer. I have no idea what pina colada yogurt is, but it looked good. And so I dumped the whole thing in the blender and stirred it up and and uh, drank the thing down. And I, it was about halfway down when I realized I was in big trouble. <laughs> the uh, carton of yogurt was full of grease, frozen grease. <laughs> Have you ever had a smoothie that's about half grease? <laughs> it is terrible. I can't... You can't imagine how bad it is. And Carolyn came in the kitchen, and I was about the color of the inside of an avocado, and both eyes were looking out of the same hole, and she said, what, what is the matter with you? And I, I explained what had happened, and she said, well, she said, that just proves how much you need me. And I agree, I agree. Those are the sorts of crazy things that, that we do when we don't have someone around to give us the right kind of direction. I, I have a friend who set out uh, some months ago to fix his, uh, his oven. It wasn't working properly, and he went to work on it, and he found a loose wire that was hanging down, and so he snipped it off. It didn't seem to have any particular use. And the next time his wife put a roast in the oven that incinerated it, he had cut off the thermostat. We, we need direction in life. And uh, those of us uh, uh, who know and love the Lord know that that information comes to us from Scripture. That's our directive for life. It teaches us, as Paul says, how to be wise unto salvation, how to make our way through life and not to crack ourselves up on the rocks at some point. Chapter six, or pardon me, chapter twenty of Acts. The first sixteen verses is uh, largely names and places, which are not too interesting to us unless you're a history student. Names like uh, Macedonia, and Philippi, and Syria, and Greece, and Asos, and Mytilene, and Chios, and Samos, and Miletus, places like that. Uh, Luke is simply describing. Uh, Paul's movements over a period of about two years, which he summarizes in a very briefly in 16 verses. Names of places and names of people in verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Paris, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. 
Some of those people are known to us from uh, Luke's uh, prior uh, reference to them. Berea was, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, Gaius was a noble. Secundus was probably a slave. In those days, uh, very often they would give numbers, not names, to children born in, slave children born in Roman households. Secundus is the Latin ordinal, means second. So he was the second child born in that family. It's another man that shows up in Paul's writings whose name is Tertius, which is third in Latin. And he may have been Secundus' brother, for all we know. But uh, the thing that, that, that interests me most about these 16 verses in which all these names uh, occur is that these are real people and these are real places. And uh, it shows that the gospel is reaching all classes, the very wealthy, Gaius, the aristocrats, Secundus, the slave, and it was reaching out into every portion of the Roman Empire. If you look at the map that's uh, inserted in your bulletin, you'll get some idea of the geographical spread of the gospel at this time. Uh, 1,500 miles or more across that map, and you can, uh, you can see how far-reaching the influence of the gospel is. Uh, far greater area than the Pacific Northwest, if you want to include Nevada and Montana and uh, <clears throat> Wyoming. Get some idea of, of, the, uh, of the geographical extension of, of the church. And all of this because of one man. That, that's the amazing thing. One man, the Apostle Paul. Planting churches which uh, multiplied themselves many times over. When I read something like this, I uh, hunger after the same sort of effect. I, I, like you, don't want to waste my life. I want it to be useful. I don't want to waste my time, my energy. I want to have an impact upon my time. And uh, this passage tells us, chapter 20 tells us, how we can have that sort of influence. Uh, Luke inserts here a very interesting story in verse uh, 7 of chapter 20. It had has to do with the church in Troas. Paul arrived there and uh, on the first day of the week, that is on Sunday, this is the first unambiguous reference to the church meeting on the first day of the week. Jews, you know, worshipped on the Sabbath. Luke tells us now that they had made a switch to the first day of the week. And they gathered to break bread, and Paul was teaching them. So we have a, uh, an account of one, uh, one message that Paul gives to a church, to the church in Troas. But the thing that interested Luke about it was uh, the young man named Eutychus, in verse 9, he was sitting on a windowsill, and he fell asleep while Paul was preaching, which gives me great comfort. Someone is... Someone has said that preachers are the only people that talk in other people's sleep. Uh, and a friend who once said of his pastor, he had no idea what color his eyes were because when his pastor prayed, he closed his eyes. And when he preached, he closed his eyes. <coughs> but uh, it appears that even, even the apostle had trouble at time keeping, other, uh, keeping his congregation's attention. It was a warm night. Uh, the... Lamps had been lit for a long time, and it was hot and stuffy, and the young man fell out of the windowsill and, and died. He was picked up dead. This is Luke's report, and he was a physician. He ought to know. He, that, it was his business to know. But uh, Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. So... Uh, 
what, despite this, uh, despite the humor in this passage, and it's certainly there, the point of it seems to be that Paul took a great deal of time to teach the Word. He taught until well after midnight. They met at night because Sunday was not a day off. Men and women had to work on Sunday, and so they came at night and they listened to the apostle teach. He taught them and he taught them and he taught them for hours until well after uh, after 12 o'clock midnight. Now, uh, move down to verse 17. And this is the section of Acts 20 that I would like to spend uh, the bulk of our time uh, on this morning. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, Paul, Luke gives us one example of Paul's teaching the congregation at Troas. And now he calls to him the elders of the church in Ephesus. And you'll note, again, that there is multiple leadership. There's a plurality of leadership here. It is elders, not the senior pastor. And the New Testament knows nothing of that, that kind of singular leadership. It's always leadership in a team relationship, men in concert with other men, uh, getting their direction from the Lord and giving their direction to the church. And what follows is a message which Paul delivers to these leaders. Luke has gathered together for us in the book of Acts a number of Pauline uh, discourses of various kinds. They're samples. Chapter 13, there's a sample of his teaching uh, a, a Gentile audience, uh, in chapter, excuse me, a Jewish audience, the uh, synagogue, uh, in chapter 13. In chapter 17, a Gentile audience in Athens. And now in chapter 20, uh, the leaders of a, of a church. Now this is almost certainly a, a shortened uh, sermon, a condensed sermon. This isn't the entire talk. But Luke gives us the substance of it here, and since the words are very much Paul's words, I gather that he was taking shorthand notes. Luke was along in this particular occasion. And what we have here is, uh, is an actual uh, verbatim, though condensed, report of Paul's message to these elders. And it falls into four divisions, very nicely, around the word and now. That occurs in verse 22, verse 25, and verse 32. The first section of the uh, message from 18 through 21 deals with the past. As you look through it, you'll notice that almost all the verb tenses are in the past. The second division, 22 through 24, is in the present. All the, most of the verb tenses there are in that uh, particular tense. And in 25 through 31, as you would expect, the future. And then 32 through 35 is a, a last will and testament, a legacy that Paul leaves behind for the church. Now let's read the first section. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two main ideas in this paragraph carried forward by the two main verbs. I was with you in verse 18. And in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring and teaching. And I think what Paul does is summarize for us the essential elements of any ministry. Associating with people, being with them, 
in teaching them the Scriptures. That's the name of the game. Uh, very often I have young pastors and others ask me, well, what, are you, what are you supposed to do in the ministry? Unfortunately, uh, most of us weren't taught in seminary what to do. We learned Greek and Hebrew and church history and theology and all those good things, and they're valuable. But no one ever said, uh, David, when you get in the ministry, this is what you're supposed to do. And consequently, I spent quite a bit of time just trying to find out what the uh, first things were and wasting a great deal of time. Paul puts it here in a nutshell. He says, the essence of the ministry is befriending people, spending time with them, associating with them, and teaching them what, what you have learned about Scripture. That's all there is to it. Now, that's not hard. Anybody can do that. Anyone here can befriend someone else and, and teach them the Scriptures. You all have friends, don't you? Don't you? <laughs> sure you do. Uh, we all have friends, and we all know a little bit of Scripture. You don't have to have a theological degree to impart truth. Many of you are in Bible study fellowship or the women's classes or the men's class or you're here on Sunday morning and uh, you study the scriptures some for yourself. You read the Bible or you're in a growth group and truth is being imparted to you. Now go find someone to impart that truth to. You'll grow much faster than you would grow if you're simply taught. The way to, to grow in knowledge of scripture is not to sit and and absorb scripture, but it's to give it out. The more you give it out, the more you, uh, the more you learn. Find someone who's a friend and start imparting a little truth to them. That's the essence of, of the ministry. That's how people grow. Anyone can do that. Anyone. As I said uh, time and time again, discipleship is, is two-way. It's mutual. It's never one way. I, I feel very awkward about calling someone up and saying, let's get together for lunch, I want to disciple you. I've never felt very comfortable about that. But I can call someone up and say, let's get together and, and help each other grow and encourage each other. And uh, let's look into the Scriptures together, see what God can, can teach us. Anyone can do that. And, and if you stop and think about it for a moment, uh, each of you here discipling someone else in that way can have an enormous effect upon this community. One of the really striking things about Boise is that though there are a lot of churches here, there is a real dearth of teaching of the Scriptures. Uh, it, it, Amos describes it in Amos 8 as a famine of hearing the Word. It's really true. And I find people all over the city are so hungry to find out what God has to say to them, and no one is telling them. Well, there's a reason why you're being taught the Scriptures in, in various places. It's so you can impart that truth to others. They don't have to go to church here. That's immaterial. But you can find others there who are your friends. The relationships are already established, and you can begin to teach them. I was in a church in Kansas City, oh, six, seven years ago, <clears throat> at a navigator conference. And uh, the, these men meet, met during the uh, lunch hour. Uh, they came from their offices and places of business in downtown Kansas City. And I taught them Second Timothy. And the first meeting we had, I looked around and nobody had a Bible because they weren't used to uh, carrying Bibles. Uh, these were not men that the navigators had had contact with before. This was a special series of meetings. And though most of them were Christians, they, weren't, uh, they just weren't 
familiar with, with the idea of Bible study. So I said, look, you know, you can't study the Bible without Bibles. Let's go find some. There must be some in this church. We're meeting in a great big downtown church. And I said, uh, is there anything in the rack in the back of the pew? And they all looked. And said, no, nothing here. And I said, well, here, I'll go find some. So I went down to the church office to the secretary, and I said, do you have any Bibles around here? And she wrinkled her brow, and she said, what? So we used to have some. Said, uh, I, I think there may be some downstairs. So we went downstairs and, and crawled into a closet and found a box way up against the wall and, and broke the thing open, and it was covered with dust, and here were a bunch of old Bibles that, were, that had been stored away downstairs. And we dragged them out and, and passed them out. And I thought, what a, what a shame. You know, what a shame that, that the infinite wealth of, of, of God, the res mighty resources of God are boxed up downstairs and people are trying to live out their, their lives and they're frustrated and, and limited and, and life is dreary and, and, and death-like. And here is the life-giving message that's available to them. And it's not being imparted. It's not being taught. I was walking through the library of... Um, uh, University of California, Berkeley, one day, and I saw a student sitting in a carol, carol reading a funny book, and I, a comic book, and I laughed right out loud. It just struck me as so incongruous. Here are the, here's the wisdom of the ages all around him in books, and this guy's sitting there reading a comic book. Which is all right, but I, it seems to me that he was missing the point. <laughs> and uh, we find that happening all, all over. I, I guess in the first place, most people are not readers anyway. And if they read anything at all, they don't read anything very profound. Have you noticed the best-selling list now? It's Jane Fonda's workout book and Thin Thighs in 30 Days and, and Real Men Don't Eat Quiche and Garfield Weighs In. <laughs> Those are in the top ten. And uh, people are not reading, but, what, but what's far worse, they're not reading the Scriptures, and, and it's not being taught to them. Troublemaker, and, it, and, and we are reading it, and it is being taught to us. So for goodness sake, let's get the message out. Channel three I have for several let years. people sit and, and struggle and die no, when they're within arm's reach of the Word of God. Let's start imparting the truth. Now, that was uh, Paul's feelings as he looked back. He says, I have been with you. And I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you uh, publicly, that is, in formal situations and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, he goes, he moves to the present. Behold, bound in spirit, I'm, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Someone once uh, commented that the Apostle Paul, whenever he came to a new town, didn't check out the local hotels. He checked, checked out the local jail to see how the facilities were there, because that's generally where he spent most of his time. <laughs> and uh, he does say that uh, he knew that bonds and afflictions awaited him. The prophets had told him that. But he says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. He says, I'm expendable. My life doesn't matter. What I want to do is finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, Paul refers to two things. His course in his ministry, he knew what his ministry was. It was to speak of the grace of God, to tell people of God's graciousness and his love for the human race. But he says, I don't know what my course is. I know my ministry. 
I know what I'm supposed to do when I get there. It's just that I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. That's plan A. But I realize that God has the right to impose all sorts of interruptions and set up appointments for me that I never planned on. And when we start looking at life like that, I think that's when life gets exciting. And we need to plan. I have, a, I have an appointment uh, page tomorrow that I have to fulfill, and you have things you have to do tomorrow, and we all have one-year plans, and some of you have five-year plans. I never get that far, but, but uh, there's nothing wrong with setting goals and planning. But I have to ask myself, am, am I willing to let God plan for me and interrupt my plans and bring people into my life that I don't particularly want to see? and be willing to and open myself up to them. Someone told me that some of our students uh, went, uh, who had gone to Sun Valley last, year to sh- uh, last week to share Christ, uh, there, are, there are a number of interesting things that happened, but one that struck me that illustrates this principle very well is that three of them walked into a hotel lobby or some place where other students were gathered and, and began to strike up conversations with the goal of sharing the gospel with them and there were three of them that walked into that room, and it just as it happened, one of them was uh, working on a degree in, in sociology, and he just happened to run into a student who was finishing up an MA in sociology, so they had a point of contact. The other just happened to have graduated from the business school over here, and he just happened to run into a fellow who was starting his business up, a new business, young man. And the third just happened to be an ex-biker, who saw a guy sitting down with his leathers on and realized he was a biker and struck up a conversation with him. He said, are you a real biker or you just like to wear those things? And uh, turned out the guy was a real thing and so was Randy and they just had an immediate point of contact. And, you know, the Lord sets those things up. We can get up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, I have no idea what you have planned for me. I know what my plan is and I'm going to pursue it, but you have the right to interfere and to change my direction and to bring into my life people that I ordinarily wouldn't encounter, wouldn't want to encounter even. You have that right. That's when things get exciting. I uh, hate to tell another ski story, but if you'll be patient with me for a minute, I I went up with uh, Brian Fisher and Josh this past week, and these guys ski slopes that, that I would never venture on. And after trying to keep up with them for a while, I decided this is folly, and so I... Uh, I started to go back over to the other side of the hill where the slopes were more to my liking. And, and so I was watching them make a final run, and I was standing up on a little, kind of a little ridge. And the snow collapsed, and I had my skis out over the edge, and the snow collapsed under me. It was kind of a little cornice. And I went down just a little slope about 10 feet, and, and I wasn't hurt because the other run was right there. But I was down below, and I thought, well, shoot, I'll just uh, ski on down because I don't want to climb back up the hill. So I skied down to the bottom. Then I realized there wasn't any way to get back to the other lift that I wanted. It was at, I was at the bottom of Pine Creek, and, you know, you can't get across to the other lift. So I thought, well, all right, I'll just ride the lift up and then ski back the other way. So I got on the lift. You know how long that thing is? You're on it for a long, long time. It's the longest lift up there. So I sat down next to a fellow, and we started talking. And after about five minutes, we were talking about spiritual things. And it turns out that this man, just within the last couple of weeks... Uh, has a dear friend here in this congregation who's known by almost all of us who's been sharing the gospel with him. And his heart is just wide open. And and we had an opportunity to chat about the Lord. He didn't receive Christ, but he's, he's really open. And this was just another opportunity to make another input into his life. 
And as I look back on that, I say, you know, that's the Lord just putting things together. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. The Lord plans and orders our life to get us to the right place at the right time. And, and, and that takes the strain out of it. We can rest. I know what to do when I get there. I'm supposed to minister to them the grace of God. That's my ministry. And uh, I'm supposed to befriend them. But it's up to God to make the connection. Now, um, Paul now turns to the future. In verse 25, And now, behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. And as far as we know, that was true. He never went back to Ephesus. Therefore, I testify to you this day that if I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the, the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Reference here to the value of the church. It's the church which God purchased with his blood. Interesting indirect reference to Jesus' deity. God purchased the church with his blood, a reference to our Lord's uh, crucifixion. It also tells us something of the high value which God places upon people. When he talks about the church, he's not talking about a building or an organization or people in mass. He's talking about, about you and me, us, the people of God. God loves us. We're infinitely valuable to him. People are important. They're, they're, they're his most important product. And uh, therefore, it, it's a terrible thing when, when the flock is disturbed and torn by, by wolves from the inside and out. He says there will be attacks from two quarters. There are wolves from the outside, and that's a reference to people who are obviously non-Christian, cynics and skeptics, antagonistic in their approach, who are up front non-Christian and, and, and very antagonistically so. But then he says there will, be, there will be attacks from within, wolves in sheep clothing who come from within the church, who look so good. They look like they're Christians. So they'll come even from among you. That is, they will be pastors, shepherds, leaders. C.S. Lewis, in, in one, of his, uh, one of his shorter writings, describes uh, his, himself talking to a group of young pastors in the Church of England. And, and he says to them... Uh, uh, there, there was a time, he said, when, when the people in the congregation were afraid to tell the vicar that they believed so much less than he. And he says, now the time has come when people in the congregation are embarrassed because they believe so much more than the vicar believes. And that's precisely what's happening. We're finding more and more that there, there are men who call themselves Christians, but they're not Christian at all. They don't believe the Scriptures. They haven't based their life on the authority of, of God's Word and on His Christ. And uh, Paul says, that's the sort of thing you can expect. It's a crescent, it's increasing, you're going to see this sort, this sort of thing going on. And uh, you need to do something about it. Remember what I did? This is I admonished everyone, night and day, for two years. Just teach the Scriptures. 
The best defense is a good offense. You don't have to go out uh, on a witch hunt. You don't have to write tracks against uh, the cults. You don't need to mount any sort of attack against them at all. Just teach the Word. And as Paul later says in 2 Timothy, those that are his will depart from iniquity. No one ever gets caught up in a cult ultimately because they're deceived, because they want to be there. People may initially be deceived, but they don't stay there if they belong to God. And what will bring them back is the proclamation of the Word. That's what it means, again, to befriend someone and, and, and teach them. If you have a brother or sister in Christ who's wandering away, go get them. If they're wandering away theologically or morally, go get them and impart the truth to them. And then finally, in verse 32, <clears throat> And now I commend you to God, he says, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Inheritance is everything that we have coming to us as God's children. God himself, ultimately, and, and all the good things that God wants to impart. Paul says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to me, uh, ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Paul says, I worked hard to support myself and the men that accompanied me. And I did so because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. That's one of those lost sayings of Jesus. That phrase doesn't occur anywhere in the Gospels. But evidently it was in circulation, and, and Paul knew it, and he quotes it here, so in the end it's not, of course, lost. But Paul's point is that I, I don't have much to leave behind. I, I don't have any silver and gold. I, I, I don't have any material uh, things to, to, to give you. But what I give you is of infinite value. It's the God of the Word and the Word of God. And that's all you need. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need success in this world. You don't need a great deal of money. You don't need power. You don't even need a mate, ultimately, as much as it hurts to live without them. What we need to make our way through life is God and His Word. That's all we need. That's, that's what will enable us to cope with life. That's the greatest legacy we can leave behind to anyone. We may not be able to leave much in terms of uh, silver and gold to our children or to other generations, but all of us can leave behind that dependence upon God, the God who is a resource for all of life, and His Word. And men and women can live by it. Now, as you look back over this passage, it seems to me, pulling all of us together, that Paul simplifies everything. This is the, the essence of the ministry. The heart of the ministry is simply making friends of people and imparting to them the truth that, uh, that you've been given. And he says that's the way you're going to prevent the incursions of, the incursion of heresy and, and, uh, and falsehood within the body. And secondly, that's the way the body will grow up to maturity. That's how they come into their own. That's how they gain their inheritance and receive everything they have coming to them because they're God's, God's children. Paul says we just need to keep on imparting the truth and making friends. There's one phrase I left out and I'd like to leave you with it. Verse 28. Paul says be on guard for yourself. 
and for all the, all the flock. We need to guard the flock, and it's God's people that are around us, but we also need to guard our own lives. And my question to you and to me is, is that, is that true of us? Are we taking heed to ourselves? Are we growing in our understanding of the Word? Here's this book that tells us how to live life and like it, live it successfully, live it effectively, live it powerfully. Do we know it? Are you reading it? Do you have a time set aside on a regular basis to look into it and to study it? And are we imparting it to others? As I said before, the, uh, the qualifications are not what we think. It's not a great deal of knowledge. It isn't a great deal of intelligence. It isn't theological information. It isn't a technical understanding of the Word. It's just a, a commitment to look into the mirror of the Word and, and respond in obedience to it and then take that truth as God teaches it to others. Uh, it teaches it to us and impart it to others. That's the basis of the ministry. Yours and mine. I'm in it professionally, and most of you are not, but really the, the, the kind of activities that we're involved in are, are not different. We're doing the same things. Paul says, this is the book that is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be mature, fully equipped for every good work. This is what equips us and others for life. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, for turning a deaf ear to the wisdom that you want to impart for being so preoccupied with the second and third things in life that we forget the first things. Keep us, Lord, from wasting our lives and and experimentation and blundering along, trying to set things right ourselves and trying to help others apart from the directive that you give us. Help us to be men and women who love your word and who believe it, who act upon it, and who impart it to others. Help us to work along the lines of our natural friendships and relationships with our family and those that are close to us to begin to impart truth. And free us from that feeling that it all depends upon us. Help us to realize that you're at work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And we thank you for that reassurance. In Jesus' name, amen.